Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to episode 216 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. This week, we have as my guest, Taylor Ledbetter. She's a wealth advisor with our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. Welcome, Taylor. It's good to be here. It's been a little bit. It's been a little bit. So we got a a fun-filled pact. Um, I have four special items I picked today. I know you have a couple too, so Mm it should be a good roundtable between you and me. So uh, we're going to skip pricing this morning. Uh, Taylor and I are recording this uh, a few days earlier than the uh, post coming up. So we're going to skip pricing this week. And the, the big headlines that everyone's going to be talking about when this podcast comes out is going to be Jackson Hole. So uh, the Federal Reserve holds an annual 2023 Economic Policy Symposium, and it's always held in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This is the uh, symposium, uh, Taylor, where a lot of people will know that the Fed communicates their narrative on monetary policy mm-hmm. while including uh, other central banks in on the conversation, including the ECB and the Japanese central bank. So it'll be interesting. The consensus right now is that um, Jerome Powell, who's our Federal Reserve Chair, is going to toe the line and say, listen, <coughs> we'll continue to raise rates if we have to. But ultimately, we're going to be data-driven on our policy decisions. And that next Federal Reserve announcement is September 20th. So that's going to be another important date on the calendar. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add? It'll be interesting to see what what they'll do. I'm hoping it'd be nice if they paused rates, but... Yeah, and right now, I want to say, as of a couple of days ago... The Fed Fund Futures was indicating an 80% probability that they're going to keep rates the same. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen, right? right. There's still a 20% chance, based upon where market money's at, that they could raise. But uh, right now, Fed Fund Futures are thinking that they'll pause at mm-hmm. this upcoming meeting. Yeah. One thing that's interesting, Taylor, and um, Aaron and I were talking about this on episode 215 of the podcast it feels as if the narrative in the market is changing from when is the Fed going to stop raising rates to when is the Fed going to begin to lower rates? How mm-hmm. long are they going to be at this level? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that it's interesting to kind of see that narrative shift over the past, especially what, four, six weeks, it kind of feels like. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think I hope they'll start lowering next year. Me too. And I think a lot of that's going to need to be dependent on if this inflation data year over year remains subdued. And the latest data point on that was plus 3.2% year over year. It gives them the cover to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I mean, there's still a month until the next meeting. So anything that's another can good change. Point. But that's another good point. And a lot can happen. A lot. A lot <laughs> yeah. can happen. So, um, Taylor, why don't you start this week? We'll start with uh, tweets. Uh, can we still call them tweets, Taylor? I still call them tweets. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the tweet bandwagon <laughs> for a while with you. So, tweets, articles, and research from this past mm-hmm. week. Taylor, you can begin. 
All right, so the first item I have is a post from Bespoke on August 21st. And this post starts off by saying, here's one way to think about investing in equities in the buy and hold strategy. Casinos make money by making sure bettors eventually lose more often than they win. The stock market is the opposite. The longer you play, the better your odds. Historically, the odds of the S&P being up over any one month time frame have been 62.6%. Over a year, the odds of being positive jump to 74.6%, and over eight years, they jump to 97%. Since 1928, all 16 plus year timeframes have seen positive returns. So I thought it was just interesting how they described it. I yeah. mean, you can never guarantee everything That's right. or anything. That's right. But sticking in the market over the long run, odds are you're going to have a positive return, you know, year over year. I love this piece because. You know, the way Bespoke sets it up, Taylor, and it's like, <clears throat> and everyone knows this, you know, casinos make money by making sure bettors eventually lose more than they win. The stock market is the opposite. The longer you play, the better your odds. You know, it's well put. And this data set is, goes back to 1928, right? You got a lot of bad time periods in there. Oh, yeah. Right? You got the 30s. You got the great financial crisis. You have the stagflation in the 70s. You know, uh, this is an interesting, you know, piece. And I think it just kind of goes back to investors need to be realistic about what is the sacrifice of getting stock-like returns. Mm -hmm. We have to deal with years like 2022. We have to deal with years like 2008. But even greater than that, we have to deal with these intra-year sell-offs. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about it a lot. You know, you could buy into the market and the market could then correct 10%. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, I'm in it for this period of time so I can, my goal, and a lot of people invest into equities to earn a return that's in excess of inflation, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And so we got to remember, you know, there's not a free lunch on that. And so right. what's the sacrifice? You got to deal with that volatility. Mm -hmm. And this piece reminds people why holding through those time periods, you're putting the odds on your side the longer you do it. Yeah. I love this piece. Yeah, because I mean, there are going to be more good days in the market than bad days. Yes. And this first item <laughs> actually kind of coincides with my next item too. Okay. So... The next item I have talks about the cost of timing the market. Mm. So these stats are actually really interesting. I've seen these over the last couple of decades once in a while mm -hmm. because the amount of work it takes to uh, come up with these stats is, is, is a lot of work. But when I see what you're about to go over, mm -hmm. this is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a post from Willie DeWelch on August 16th. Okay. And he says, when they tell you what happens by missing some number of best days Here it is. without telling you about what happens by missing the same number of worst days, they're pitching their narrative, not offering perspective. Oh, this is going to be good. 
that is the worst kind of noise, factually true, but actually irrelevant. Hmm. So this cost of time in the market, there's a chart for this post. And the example it uses, you know, say it's 2003, you invest $10,000 into the S&P 500. It stays in there 365 days of the year through the highs and the lows. Got it. As of 2022, it would be worth around 64 grand. So roughly two decades. Mm-hmm. So a, essentially a $50,000 gain or, or growth. Substantial. Now, if you were to miss 10 of the best trading days in the market between 2003 and 2022, your $10,000 investment would only be worth around 29 grand. That's a huge stat right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was so interesting because it's so true. It is. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple other examples on here. So I'll just go over one more. Um, if you were to miss the 60 best days in the market over that 20 year time span, your investment would only be worth about $4,200. You would have lost. Mm-hmm. A lot of days in two decades, a lot of trading days mm-hmm. in 60 of them. I mean, not only are you missing out on the best trading days, number one, you're being invested in probably some of the worst, and you're missing out on some of that purchasing power or inflation risk, I should say, by not staying invested all the time. The other thing that kind of comes to mind, Taylor, when you're going through this is let's take that second stat of missing the 10 best days and your return would go from roughly 65,000 down to roughly 30. Mm-hmm. I'm going to argue that those 10 best days probably occurred at very volatile, challenging times for the market that, you know, I'm thinking of 2008. I'm thinking of um, a couple of the best days right after COVID hit. There were days where the market was down 10% and up 10%. Mm-hmm. You know, you start thinking of some of those days, it's a challenge to want to hold your investments mm-hmm. through those time periods. Yeah. Right. And so um, I just want to throw that out there on the cusp. It seems that, oh, it's easy to be in for the, te- you know, you're always going to capture those 10 best days. Those 10 best days are happening when when times are not normal mm-hmm. and very volatile. Yeah, and you're actually spot on because it also lists the 10 best days in the market since 2003. Oh, it does, doesn't <laughs> and it? And most of them are in 2008 and 2020, <laughs> like you just said. I know Jenna's going to love this. Oh, yeah, Jenna, I'm so sorry. I know you just said that the next day in 2020, the market was up 10%, and the stat is I'm right there. You all, I'm giving you wonderful content this morning, Jenna. <laughs> that is hilarious, Taylor. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought this was really interesting because it's it's easy to listen to the negative news that comes out and you know maybe go to all cash that's the easier thing to do but decisions like that have the biggest impact on your account growth perfectly said and then just again you know these are tough times to want to hold through and again look at those dates you have there i know jenna's gonna has already put up this visual for our youtube viewers we'll have this in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners on our various social media sites like LinkedIn, Twitter, I can't say it anymore, X, <laughs> X, um, 
um, and, and the like, but mm -hmm. I just, that's a great piece. Yeah, I, I, I like the visual on this. Yes. I'm a visual person, so. Very good, very good. All right, so my last item is from Ryan Dietrich, a post on August 18th, and it talks about the seasonality effect for August and September. You know, talking about seasonality, I'm like all <laughs> over the board today. Mm -hmm. My seasonal allergies are kicking in hardcore right now. Anybody else? I haven't had anything you, yet. Jenna? Yeah. My God, I'm, I'm the canary <laughs> in the coal mine. It's coming. Yeah. All right, keep going, Taylor. I'm so sorry. All right, so Ryan starts off by saying, it's been a great run, but some of the most vocal bears have been offering apologies lately. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Couple that with the historically weak August and September months coming up, and maybe a small break is due. Lastly up, heading into August, the S&P was up 17.5% year-to-date, higher only 3 out of 11 times, and down 1.1% on average, referring to August and September. And that data set goes back to 1950, post-World War II. And, you know, Mark was talking about this in the podcast, I want to say about maybe seven, eight weeks ago about seasonality and how August and September and these pre-election years tend to be, you know, flat to down, mm -hmm. especially with that run that we had in May, June, July, Taylor. I'm not sitting here surprised by this, and I love this post by Ryan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what I liked is this chart shows returns for um, pre-election years, and it separates the pre-election year from past 10 years, past 20 years. And again, you see so much negative news, but historically in a pre-election year, September's only down about 1% on average. And this is interesting too, because it shows that August is flat to maybe slightly higher. Mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna have the opposite of that this year. Is August gonna be our down month and September's our flat month? You know, it's to be determined. Um, but ultimately, you know, I've said this countless times over the past month. You know, there have been people who've been waiting for an entry point who might be under allocated to equities. Again, that's in line with their longer term goals and objectives and risk tolerances. But if you're underweight equities and you um, got out of the market in 2022, you're getting some pitches now that, in my opinion, aren't bad pitches when you have a longer term time horizon. Mm -hmm. And I just think that. You know, this is there's some good opportunities. Yeah, I mean, we've had such a nice run-up so far this year. I think to get back in, if you haven't already, would be within the next month or so. Yeah, I mean, you can I mean, dollar cost average, you know, develop a strategy. Heck, it can even be over 6 to 12 months. But, um, yeah, I just think it's an interesting post by Ryan. You know, let's give him credit. You know, he was um, one of the individuals that uh, earlier in the year was kind of, you know, pounding the table. Um, you know, I don't want to spike the football ourselves, but we were definitely in a similar camp, I would say. And it's just interesting how, you know, everything's easy to look at in hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting higher equity allocations earlier in the year was definitely an unpopular view. Oh, yeah. And it's just interesting as kind of each quarter goes on, Taylor, everyone's like, well, recession's off the table now for the second half of the year. Maybe it'll come in the first half of next <laughs> year. 
And it's like as every quarter goes on, everyone mm -hmm. kind of keeps, as he's mentioning, these vocal bears are starting to apply the apologies lately, as, as Ryan Dietrich yeah. said. I mean, every quarter or every year, there's always going to, I feel like, be some kind of reason in the news that people are saying not to get into the market. There it is. So you just have to ignore that. That's right. That's right. So my first piece for listeners, and I promised this on uh, podcast 215, uh, I promised I would have an update on energy. Okay, and I, and I didn't steal my own thunder. I was disciplined, Taylor, and I saved it for this week. Jenna's gonna be proud of me. So this source of this data is from the EIA. That is the US Energy Information Administration, and this is from August 18th. This is their, let's just say, forecast on supply and demand in inventories. I wanna read this first. Then I'm gonna have Jenna put up a chart that shows their forecasted uh, demand and supply of oil, okay? Start first with global oil supply and prices. The Brent crude oil spot price in our forecast, and again, this is the EIA, Taylor, their forecast increases in the coming months, reflecting our expectations of tightening balances in the global oil markets. The Brent crude oil spot price averaged $80 per barrel in July. That's up $5 from June. Crude oil prices increased primarily because of extended voluntary cuts to Saudi Arabia's crude oil production and expectations of higher global demand. We expect the production cuts combined with increasing demand will cause global oil inventories to fall and to put upward pressure on oil prices through the end of this year. The Brent price in our forecast averages $86 a barrel in the second half of 2023 and could reach $88 a barrel in November and December and remains near that level in the first quarter of next year. Crude oil prices began to ease in the second quarter of 2024, they think, as supply growth leads to some rebuilding of global inventories later in 24. The Brent prices in our forecast average $86 a barrel next year. So I'm gonna start here, Taylor. Mm -hmm. Why did I wanna read through that? Right now you got oil that's roughly $80 a barrel. OPEC wants this price higher. In a minute here, when I go over this chart, the forecast is that supply is gonna be outstripped by demand here in the near future. And you and I both know what happens when there is more demand than supply. Mm -hmm. What happens? Prices go up. Right. And I definitely think that this is a risk. And so when I look at kind of the inflation front of kind of all these factors of inflation really coming in, the one that could get reignited over the six, nine months in the future here, it's gonna be oil, mm. okay? Something I think we need to keep an eye on. So I'll finish with this, global oil, global oil inventories. We estimate global oil inventories will transition from a period of inventory builds in the first half of 2023 to inventory draws through the end of the year, placing upward pressure on global oil prices. So now uh, Jenna's gonna put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This is gonna be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. 
Again, this source is from August 18th, the U.S. Energy Information Administration. This is their short-term uh, energy outlook, and it's showing their forecast through the end of 2024 of supply and demand. So I thought this was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Any comments before I go, and I have one more topic uh, on this, but your initial comments or thoughts, Taylor? Yeah, no, I mean, this chart is interesting because the production and consumption are basically at a break even yeah. for 2023 and 2024. Um, and it's interesting to see the, impl the implied stock build up back in 2020 when prices were so low. So it's nice to see that visualized on, on chart. And think of it, you know, this, this chart's kind of forecasting out roughly well, almost 18 months. What happens if a hurricane comes through the Gulf of Mexico and shuts down, you know, a lot of that production, which could happen this hurricane season or next hurricane season next year? I mean, start thinking of those different things, yeah. right? And so if the forecast is such tight supply with demand, takes just one or two geopolitical natural disasters to kind of put a kink on this mm -hmm. that could exacerbate that price even higher. Just something I think that we need to kind of be going into eyes wide open. Um, one last point. Now, a question on a lot of people's minds, Taylor, is why are gas prices so high relative to the current price of oil? Because we think back the last couple of years, if you were to peg me and say, Matt, the price of gasoline is 360 a gallon, I would look at you and say, well, oil must be in the 90s or maybe even $100 a barrel. But it's not. It's at 80. So I did some digging on this, okay? Marie Dodds, public affairs director of AAA, said recently that, quote, Taylor, sustained record-breaking heat across much of the U.S., has led to issues at refineries resulting in reduced output, end quote. Crude oil is the main ingredient in gasoline and diesel, so pump prices are impacted by crude prices on the global markets. On average, about 56% of what you pay for a gallon of gasoline is for the price of crude oil. 20% is refining, 11% is distribution, gotta get it there, and marketing, and 14% are taxes, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So, I think the refineries are making, my perception, they're making good money. They're not necessarily motivated to see these prices come down at the pump. Of course not. So, I think as the year goes on, you're hearing it here on the Independent Advisors podcast here in August, be prepared for oil prices and gasoline prices to most likely be higher as the year goes on. Mm -hmm. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah, no, I mean, you broke that down perfectly. I think maybe a common misconception with the, the average American consumer is that if inflation is starting to go down, gas should too, but that's not at all how it works. There's so many other factors. So I think this post explained the whole process perfect. Thank you. I thought it was a, I thought it was a good one as well, and it'll give it to our listeners and viewers in plain English, in my mm -hmm. opinion. So my next piece talks about Taylor um, seasonal volatility in the market. Okay, this was a post by um, Mr. Thomas, 
and uh, we uh, quote his work a lot. And um, he had this piece from August 20th, and this piece has to do with the VIX, which is the CBOE Volatility Index. It's going to show the seasonality of the calendar year going back to 1990, and when periods of the year typically have low volatility, and when the market tends to have higher volatility. So Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners and all of our social media sites. And when you look at this, Taylor, I'm gonna let you decipher this. So you tell me, when are the higher volatility periods of the market? And when are we in lower and what's about to happen? Yeah, so um, according to this chart, it looks like historically October and November tend to have the highest volatility. Mm -hmm. and the lowest volatility tends to be in June, July. Perfectly split. I mean, you know, and this red line is overlaying 2023 so far. Mm -hmm. And it's almost working out besides the banking crisis that we had in March. Yep. It's almost working out perfectly from a seasonality standpoint. Yeah. So the next thing you want to be prepared for, and you heard it here first on the Independent Advisors Podcast <laughs> in August of 2023, prepare for more market volatility later in the year. And what's also interesting about this chart is, and looks like the end of November, early December, completely drops almost. It does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It really does. That's a, it's a good observation because you're right. Now, this next piece surprised me, and uh, I think it's even gonna surprise Jenna. So here, this is really cool. This piece is from Bespoke Investment Group on August 17th. This was a piece of raw research that they had about uh, e-commerce, Taylor. But this is what stuck out at me. E-commerce share of total US retail sales and I thought this number would be drastically higher, and Jenna's gonna put up this chart for our YouTube viewers, it'll be in our show notes, is coming in at around 16% mm -hmm. of total sales are done online. That is I surprising. thought it would be drastically higher. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Thought that was interesting. <clears throat> the other chart they have is retail sales growth uh, quarter over quarter. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of growth in this area. And it seems to be the run rate uh, for e-commerce growth is around, let's call it high single digits every quarter. And that's pretty substantial on a compounding basis. And you can see that in the chart. Mm -hmm. Just the thing that stuck out at me is, uh, and this is what they said, 15.4% of total sales in the US are online. I honestly expected something in the low 30s. Oh, I'm yeah. just gonna say like yeah, a third. Mm -hmm. Thirds out online, but we're in the mid-teens. Yeah, that's surprising because, I mean, even when you go out, I feel like you don't see a lot of people at the malls or, you know, shopping, at least what I've observed. Sure, and I think it's like everything from grocery store. You know, mm -hmm. is grocery store delivery in these dual-income households becoming more and more common? Absolutely. But still a majority of Americans probably physically go to the grocery store themselves, mm -hmm. right? I just think it's interesting because when I see a stat like this, it's like, man, we're still in the infancy mm -hmm. of e-commerce. It doesn't yeah. feel like it at times, 
but only 15%. Yeah, and I wonder if like the grocery delivery, for example, or the grocery pickup, (coughs) I wonder if a majority of people who are doing that option are younger, younger individuals. So as more time goes on. Those demographics, they get used to it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that percentage will probably increase substantially over the next few years. Well put. So my last piece will be very quick. It's also from Ryan Dietrich. It shows the S&P 500 index, the next future 12 months earnings per share estimate. Okay. So Jenna will put up this, uh, this image for our YouTube viewers. Highly recommend this in our show notes. So what it is, is it shows from FactSet, it's aggregating from all these research firms, what they're expecting the S&P 500 earnings per share to be. And we have been on an upward revision, forecast, trajectory, call it what you will, since February. And this is something that when you turn on the financial news networks, no one's talking about this right now. And I've always said on this podcast for years, one of the best predictors, in my opinion, of a stock price is the underlying fundamentals of the company and ultimately its underlying trajectory of its earnings per share. And when I see the overall index, when these estimates continue to go up for the expectations over the next 12 months, that's not bearish. I'm bringing it back, Jenna. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not bearish. Bringing it back. It's yeah. been a while. How long has it been since I said that? I'm bringing it back. <laughs> it's not bearish. Yeah. No, you haven't heard anything about this in the news. And I mean, high EPS numbers just prove to investors that the stock is more valuable, which is obviously very attractive. Yep. So, I mean, we're not in a bad spot. No, we're not. And if you look, the uh, the high point on this EPS chart was June of last year at 238 and here in august we're at 236. wow and the market environments were completely different or it felt different at least yeah it's crazy i mean you know you we can go pull one of the podcast episodes from last june and july and i know the narrative we were sending we were sending a narrative of get perspective it's a bad year bad really bad quarter q2 of last year but remember this too shall pass and it's just interesting when you're in that environment, like you said, it, it felt like not the world was ending, but it felt bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a very, very interesting. I just want to say underlying fundamentals might not be as bad as you might be reading about. Right. So I'll turn it over to you, Taylor, to finish us up this week with the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, so the topic I have this week talks about Social Security since it started and kind of correlates that with life expectancy. I thought this this post was really interesting. Okay. So um, this was posted by Ben Carlson on August 4th. So he starts off by saying the most popular retirement plan for people in the early 20th century and before was very simple. There was no saving your entire career and moving to Florida or Arizona to golf your days away for the next two to three decades. There were no gold watch ceremonies when you hung it up at the office. Most people simply worked until they passed away because a life of leisure and retirement wasn't a thing for most people. 
in 1900, 75% of men aged 75 or older were still in the labor force. From 1920 to 1960, the number of senior citizens in the workforce dropped from 60% to 30%. Wow. That number is now below 10%. Wow. So what changed? Well, first of all, people started living longer. And this post has a life expectancy chart from 1880 to 2021. In 1880, the average life expectancy was 40 years. Mm-hmm. Which I'd be dead. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I feel. I mean, we all know that in the 1800s, life expectancy oh, yeah. was not high. Yes. But to actually see the difference from then to now it is huge. Yeah, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is an awesome chart. Um, so the, the post goes on to say, four out of every 10 older Americans would be below the poverty, poverty line if it wasn't for social security. Instead, that number is one in 10. Social security is the largest source of retirement income for a large number of retirees in this country. The program provides at least 50% of income for 40% of beneficiaries. Larger than I would have guessed. Yeah. And one out of every seven people who receive Social Security rely on it to provide at least 90% of their income. Now, that stat doesn't surprise me. The first, the other one does. Yeah, yeah. The second one is not not a surprise at all. And the article goes on to kind of talk about how pensions have changed in correlation with the Social Security. Okay. So according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute, the number of people covered by private pension plans went from less than 4 million in 1940 to almost 20 million by 1960. Hmm. That was 30% of the labor force. By 1975, 40 million people, people were covered, more than 40% of the labor force. And it has a couple stats on here. So in 1973, oh my gosh. <laughs> in 1973, the median monthly income from Social Security was $166. Holy smokes, Taylor. And for a pension, it was $177. Mm. If we inflate that to what it would be in terms now, um, that translates to about $1,000 for Social Security a month and about $1,000 for pensions Mm -hmm. every month. Yeah. So um, just about 44% of people actually received pension income in 1973, while the average Social Security payout was nearly just as much as that pension income. Plus, there were no 401ks, IRAs, Roth accounts, or any other tax-deferred retirement plans because simply they just didn't exist. Now, what's surprising is if we look at today what the actual numbers are um, on a month-to-month basis, Social Security, the median payout is about $1,600, and the median payout for a pension is about 880 Half, mm-hmm. practically. It's a huge difference. Yeah, and look at the pension participation rate. Mm-hmm. 11% now, where it was 
44 percent back in 1973. Absolutely believe that number. Mm -hmm. And again, that I bet you majority of that 11 percent is government related jobs. Oh, def I would agree you know, with you on that. You know, you're just seeing it go away and everything else. I mean, even the unions, you know, I just you're just seeing this. The, the pensions aren't what they used to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know I said, you know, in the 70s, um, they didn't really have the defined contribution plan. So the 401ks, yeah. the IRAs. Just didn't have them. So the participation rate was 0%, but now the partici participation rate is 52%. So almost like a trade-off essentially, but now the risk is all, or mostly on the employee instead of the employer with the pensions. I was just going to say that, Taylor. Great, great point to make. So for our listeners and viewers, when you have a pension, in essence, the risk or the investment risk is on the organization that sponsored that pension. Mm -hmm. Now, they've told you, okay, XYZ employee, you're gonna get this amount of money based upon some formula of length of service in compensation, right? Well, when it comes to a defined contribution plan like a 401k, you, the participant, choose how aggressive or conservative you want to be. Mm -hmm. And so that investment risk is on you. Yeah, so there's no guarantee of a monthly payout later on down the line. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so I just thought that was really interesting. I, I like to see the estimated inflated numbers versus the actual <coughs> numbers because so much has changed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No, that was great. So uh, anything else on that topic you want to finish up with? Um, no, that was pretty much everything. Okay, we have no listener questions this week. I would encourage, uh, if you do have questions, that um, you get those uh, tagged in our social media sites. Uh, you can send uh, Jenna an email at inquiries at justifwealthmanagement.com. Um, we have heard that uh, uh, Mark uh, and his wife Kenzie and uh, their baby are doing very well. Mama and baby are both healthy. So we'll have updates on that uh, for the weeks to come. I wanted to throw that out there. So uh, I'll sign us off, Taylor. So uh, as always, uh, we appreciate you uh, listening to episode 216 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Myself, Jenna, Taylor, we hope you have a good rest of your week and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. 
All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.